Today, we're privileged to have a conversation with Brad Carroll. Brad is directing Comedy of Errors this season. Brad has an incredible range of experience as a performer, director, musician, and composer. Brad's directed a number of productions of the Utah Shakespeare Festival, including Les Miserables, Anything Goes, and Christmas Carol on the Air. Brad is also the composer of the musical adaptation of the comedy Lend Me a Tenor, the musical, which debuted in London's West End in 2012. Thank you so much, Brad, for joining us today. My pleasure. I know we're heading right into preview weeks. You've probably got a lot on your plate, so we yeah. really appreciate it. Sure. This is a, a bit of a different experience for you at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. You've kind of been the, the music guy yeah. for a number of years uh, with uh, Les Miserables, HMS Pinafore, Anything Goes. Uh, what are some of the differences in directing a Shakespeare play, maybe working outdoors in the Adams Theater? Well... I mean, the first thing I said when they asked me to do it was, I guess I have to strap on my big boy boots now. <laughs> I'm going to be doing Shakespeare outdoors. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's not its not been a, a, quite the transition I thought it was going to be, Yeah. because you know, I've spent so much time in that space as an audience member, you know, yeah, yeah. And sort of scoping out stuff and seeing how things get staged. And, um, and you know, they handed me a terrific cast. Cool. So, it, you know, it wasn't having to, teach anybody how to do it. I mean, you know, people come in and, and they know their stuff and, yeah. you know, and, and just setting it in that space with the inner above and some, you know, sightline problems way around. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's been the main thing yeah. is just making sure it all fits on the stage out itself. there. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and most of the people in the cast have worked out there. So they already sort of understand, well, if I stand here and you stand there, uh -huh. then everybody can see. So they cool. make those adjustments instinctively awesome so i've learned you know quite a bit from just watching you know rick peoples and how, he, pressure how he makes the adjustments without having to be you know asked to very cool so um it's been absolutely great to be out there i mean it's such a great space i remember standing on that stage for the first time two years ago uh, it was opening night of the season and they had all the directors come up on stage uh-huh and i was standing next to henry warnitz and i looked out and i said I just realized I've never stood on this stage <laughs> and what it must be for the actress to play yeah, to yeah. that house is incredible, you know, cause it's, it's big and yet it still feels really intimate. It is very intimate. Space, yeah. yeah. And uh, so I'm sort of glad I had that moment. Very cool. You've got an interesting concept for Comedy of Errors. I'm wondering <laughs> if you could, I was surprised to hear about it. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why you chose to go the direction you, you've gone and how it's been sort of adapting this play through this lens. Okay. Um, well, it all started uh, last at the end of last season. Brian and David uh -huh. came to me and said, we'd really like you to do Comedy of Errors which was the first shock because I've just never, I've never done a Shakespeare You expected to maybe do Into the Woods. That's what I was expecting yeah. to hear, right? Yeah, okay. And, and they said, and we also want to encourage you to think outside the box a little bit, meaning, you know, <laughs> no not, pressure. not necessarily setting it in the way Shakespeare said it or uh -huh. setting it in an Elizabethan setting. And I thought, wow, okay, well, what does that mean yeah, yeah. exactly, you know? And the first, my first instinct was I wanted to get it to America. Okay. I wanted to get it on familiar turf mm -hmm. and out of some exotic locale. Yeah. And then I just sat down and started reading the play over and over and over to see if anything leapt out at me. And and another instinct I had was I wanted to hear it done 
if they would allow this, with American regional dialects. Okay. And not hear just Shakespeare speak, uh -huh. you know? So I just sort of strapped on a cowboy dialect one day and started reading out loud to myself. <laughs> and it was hilarious to me how the language resonates in a completely different way in our sort of rural yeah, yeah. American dialects. And I got to a line that the first merchant has in the second scene. And he says, this very day, a Syracusian merchant dies ere the weary sun set in the West. <laughs> it's like cowboy poetry. Yeah, right? exactly. And I thought, <laughs> well, hmm, that's interesting. After I quit giggling at myself, all the references to gold, there's a goldsmith. Yeah. And I started thinking, well, why don't we set it in Utah? <laughs> you know, I mean, we're in the heart of what used to be the Wild West. Yeah. But there's all these references to coming to this town by ship. Yep. And, you know, the Great Salt Lake is a big body of water, but it's not really a ship body of water. Yeah, not a port. So then I started, I went I went east first, and I thought, St. Louis, the Mississippi? I did a production years ago that I was in that was set in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. Oh, cool. And I thought, well, that doesn't really play. So I went west and went San Francisco. Gold. The gold rush. Well, so I did a little more homework. Uh-huh. And the thing about Ephesus, where the play is actually set, in the time it was set, it was a it was a melting pot of people, okay. and political beliefs and religious beliefs, and you know, uh, uh, crazy behavior. And, a trading market center, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it had all this Roman influence, Greek influence, Jewish influence, Christian influence, pagan influence, and it was you know, it was sort of known as this crazy town. Uh huh. And I thought, San Francisco, gold rush. So I did some homework and found out that in 1848, before they discovered gold, yeah. uh, San Francisco was just a little tent town of about 1,000 people. There oh, weren't wow. even any real permanent structures. Mm -hmm. By the end of 1849, 25,000 people in San Francisco. <laughs> wooden structures, uh, you know, concrete structures. Yeah. And over a half a million people had passed through on their way to Sutter's Mill mm -hmm. where the gold was. The, the bay was littered with abandoned ships and boats because people got off their boats and headed inland and didn't yeah. even care. And then I started thinking, well, there's a courtesan in the show. Courtesan, saloon girl. Uh-huh. You know, and then I thought, well, my other question was, who's this Dr. Pinch guy? You know, it's, <laughs> it's a small but really featured role yeah. with him as this conjurer. And then I did a little more homework and found out that this was about the time that P.T. Barnum started touring the country with his, what did he call it? His circus of human oddities. Mm -hmm. So we sort of turned Pinch into a, a wannabe P.T. Barnum <laughs> who travels with these interesting people and also is sort of a snake oil salesman. Kind of a quackery, yeah. And stuff just started. The Merchants could be gold prospectors. And, um, and you know, and, and uh, the Antipholuses could both be, you know, business people. Uh -huh. And just one thing led to another, and I started lining things up and trying to translate the language. And I thought another interesting thing was Adriana, the the, the primary um, uh, female role, mm -hmm. she's upset a lot of the time yeah. with her husband, right? Yeah. And I thought, well, what if she were from some place that was more genteel? And part of the reason she's so uptight is because she hates it uh -huh. in this town Ruffian that's West. full of gunslingers and toothless miners, you know? <laughs>
So we decided to set to to have her be a transplant from like the genteel plantation society of Atlanta. Yeah. That he married her and brought her here, and she hates it. So that sort of feeds her fury uh -huh. through the whole thing because now here she has no idea what her husband is off doing. When they were <laughs> home, she knew who he was with. You know yeah, what I mean? yeah, yeah. And uh, Cassie Bissell, who plays Adriana, has so taken to that idea. I mean, she's she's turned it into a real showpiece. Yeah. So that's what I pitched to Brian and David after a, a couple of weeks of homework and. Sounds like more than a couple of weeks of homework. Well, it was, yeah, it was sort of, you know, uh, crammed because I thought, well, if they hate this, I have to go back to the drawing board. Absolutely. Right? So I better so, pitch it well. Yeah. So I shared it and was greeted with about 20 seconds of silence, <laughs> which scared me a little bit. And then all of a sudden, Brian started to laugh because he started sort of thinking through it all. Uh -huh. And they sat there and they nodded and they laughed and I talked a little more. And finally, they said, let's do it. Yeah. You know, and another thing that I knew doing it outdoors, it had to be a, some sort of historical setting. Absolutely. I mean, to set it in modern day New York in that theater would be ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You know, and then the, 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 the designers, when they came on board, you know, I mentioned this whole idea. And David Mickelson, the costume designer, yeah. said, well, if, if we set it there, the silhouette for the women is going to be very much like the Elizabethan silhouette. That's interesting. And there are all these parallels about floppy hats and big boots on the guys that he said, I've used those same boots in yeah, productions yeah. of Henry. You know? <laughs> yeah. So there were parallels that way. And then Vicki Smith, the set designer, has basically transformed the, the Adams Theater into what looks like an old Western movie set. Uh-huh. And I think it translates beautifully. I think the Adams Theater has been crying out to, to be this sort of false front Western town. That's incredible. And it's, I mean, it all just sort of came together and the actors took the idea and ran with it. And now we'll see. It sounds like it's been much more of an organic process than I would imagine for, you know, comedy of errors of the Western. But I can see where some things do kind of align. Yeah, they really did. Uh, the Old West was a severe time. Yeah. And but and this play opens with a, an execution scene. Yeah. Essentially, right? So there's even some thematically there's there's yeah. some alignment. Yeah. I mean, it would, it doesn't start out as a comedy. Oh no, no, no. You know, like it starts out with suggest. this poor man going to be you know hung at five o'clock if he doesn't come up with a thousand bucks basically uh -huh. basically and he's given you 24 know. hours right to... well actually he's given about five hours he's given till the end of the day and it's noon when the play starts oh wow so yeah <laughs> but i guess i mean shakespeare does that a lot i mean you know the, the, as you like it starts out with with uh um rosalind basically being held prisoner by her uncle and yeah. twelfth night starts with a shipwreck i mean he he tends to frame his comedies in somebody's tragedy uh-huh and I think that's really an interesting thing because it really gives you it something to spring from. As that's opposed true. to if it's just, as I said to the cast, if it's just clown noses and fright wigs from the get-go, mm -hmm. then what do you do? It's true. What do you take home? Well, yeah. What do you, then you're sort of forced to be funny. Cool. As opposed to, and then the example I always give is, you know, the Lucy, uh, Lucy I love Lucy. Yeah. And Dick Van Dyke. You know, everything starts out perfectly normal at yep. the beginning of every episode. And by the end really insane things have happened yeah you can say that about comedy of errors this it's yeah. sort of a situation comedy right? it really is and that i can see how that lends itself to the old west kind of idea yeah. too i mean i watched a bunch of old you know hollywood western comedies uh -huh. yeah and thought boy it really 
it really works. This, uh, the idea of mistaken identity and just this overall confusion about yeah. who people are, you know, from their spouses, from, the, from their family, and, and for themselves, I think, too. The, the Ephesus um, Antiphilus is kind of going through a bit of a crisis. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that... Well, you're dealing with a, an old language with Shakespearean English. Right. And you're dealing with so much confusion on stage. Is it difficult maybe to sort of be the translator to make sure the audience is, is you know, aware of the dramatic irony that's going on? Well, it's, I mean, basically what I've, I've said to the cast is you really have to think about the moment you're in uh -huh. and not worry about the rest of it because it, it, the way he's written it, it does itself. And if you worry too much about, well, I did that here, now I've got to do this here, uh -huh. then it's it's almost like you're giving away too much of the story. Okay. It's like, you know, when, when we're confused about something, we get locked into that confusion. Yeah. And and how do I get out of this? How do I get through this? And we don't worry about what we had for dinner yesterday. You know, we don't worry about the rent. <laughs> we're worried about how do I get out of this situation? Yeah. Right here, right now. Uh -huh. And if, I mean, and, and it also is what helps propel the, the story forward, uh, just even pace-wise, yeah. is really living in this moment with these words. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it, it, it's his first play, and it is it is flawed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can't believe I'm saying that about Shakespeare. But, you know, there are some dramaturgical problems in it that we've had to sort of negotiate. Yeah, yeah. And I've read version after version after version where sometimes these two speeches are inverted. Yeah. You know, just to try to make it clear, especially in Act Five, the, you know, the great Shakespeare Act Fives, where everything has to come back together. And yeah, especially in the comedies, you know, there are no dead people at the end. That's true. They, um, they get married. But yeah, yeah, right. Everybody gets happily ever after. But uh -huh. boy, getting to that, um, we've you know, we're I'm I have a rehearsal tomorrow where we're doing yet another version of yeah. about eighteen lines to see if we can't make it make chronological sense for everybody. Oh, wow. It's and, an interesting idea. We have this, the most canonized writer in our language, right? But there is so much up to people now interpreting, uh, maybe not the intent of what Shakespeare was, was, was going but, for, but just the, but but the, uh, the, the spin on it. And making it make sense. Word. Yeah. Right, essentially. Yeah. That's got to be an there's incredible some challenge. Well, you know, I was talking to Henry Warnitz about it, and, you know, the man is a Shakespeare scholar, and, and, and he even says, you know, there's certain things that will not make sense yeah. to a modern audience unless they're what I call Shakespeare geeks, you know, yeah. and they've done all of the research and the homework uh -huh. because that's what they love to do. Yeah. You know, and, you know, he said when he, when he did Titus here uh, two two years ago, I guess it was, he, he says, I cut 600 lines out of the play. Oh, wow. To make it palatable, for lack of a better word, yeah. to a modern audience because there is a lot... I mean, Comedy of Errors is really short anyway, but we still cut probably 60 or 70 lines. Oh, wow. Because there's, as I said, there are certain Elizabethan references that unless you've studied it... It's not going to mean anything. It's not going to make sense. And yeah. I just thought, I don't want to send people off down a path trying to figure out what you just said so that they miss the next three things that happen. And Got basically I said, I want my mother to be able to understand this play, <laughs> not all the Shakespeare scholars who come. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I think that's important. I mean, we've got to sell tickets, right? Exactly. Too. Yeah. Very you know, cool. So we've, we've sort of 
circumnavigated some of those uh, moments. Yeah. To try to just keep the 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 primary story moving. Cool. So is uh is laughter what's going to carry an audience through this? I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. We had sort of a test audience the other night. A lot of the concessions people and box office people okay, came. Okay, cool. And we got great response from them. Yeah. And I think the thing about it uh, is there are going to be some some surprises just because it's now set in a Western setting that we're all familiar with. I mean, yeah. if you've ever seen a Western movie, you're going to see stuff in the play that are, are just stereotypically, classically, right out of a lot of those old Westerns. That's true. Archetypes or tropes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, instead of a, ch there's usually a big chase scene. Yeah. Right near, you know, near the end of the play. And instead we're, we're having a gunfight. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> totally makes sense. You've been a, a resident artist, a uh, faculty member here at SUU, Southern Utah University, for a couple of years now. Mm -hmm. Do you think kind of living, uh, spending time in, in the West and, I mean, what's essentially an old mining ag community maybe had a little bit of influence on your decision? To, well, to... maybe. You know, as I yeah. said, you know, one of my first instincts was, why don't we set it here? This is a different place, a small town yeah. with theater. It's yes. Kinda, it's <laughs> right. It's a little odd compared yeah, to most. Yeah. Well, it it becomes its own melting pot, especially in the summer. You it's know, a, it's a different you know, place. Actors from all over the country. Yeah. And and you know, people coming to the festival from all over the all over the West. And yeah. I just thought something closer to home might be really resonant. You know, as opposed yeah. to some exotic locale in in Asia or something. You the, know. Yeah, that's done all the time. Yeah. Right. Well, and it's interesting. I was I was talking to somebody the other day. Uh, and it hadn't really occurred to me that of all the productions of Comedy Bears I've ever seen, I've never seen it set where Shakespeare said it. Really? Somebody has always done some sort of a spin on it. That's interesting. You know? I don't, I don't know why that is. I was just going to ask, why, why you know, would that be? I don't know. I mean, like last summer, uh, Dan Sullivan in New York said it in upstate New York. <laughs> And it was sort of a guys and dolls meets comedy of errors. I said, yeah. I, I was in a production that was set in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. We got people in the cast said, uh, was in a production once where all the characters were like Hollywood stars. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, uh, what's his name? Rhett Butler, uh, uh, Clark Gable, yeah. and Gene Harlow. And, and somebody else said that they were in a production where it was all Abbott and Costello. Wow. So I have never seen. Or know anybody who's actually done one that was set where Shakespeare said it. So most people that get their hands on this place seem to want take to take it someplace. Take it someplace, maybe for the same reasons you described, to make yeah. it more familiar to an audience. Yeah, because right? you know Ephesus in the second century A.D. is maybe a little obscure to most little, people. I think, <laughs> you know, yeah. not something we particularly study in history class. Yeah, you know, true. Uh, uh, not a musical, obviously, comedy of errors, right? Is there is there a little bit of pressure removed in not having to worry about music, about dance choreography, about the approaching songs, moving out of songs? Yeah. Well, I th I think it's one of the things, as I said earlier, that I feel like this is the easiest project I've ever done here, and maybe it's because yeah we're not having to stop and spend three days on a musical number before we can get back to the play. Yeah. You know. Uh huh. And it's you know there's a lot. Just a lot more moving parts in a yeah. musical. Yeah, yeah. Because you got an orchestra down there, and you've got dance numbers that have to make sense. And, mm -hmm. and I kept wondering why it was so easy. And like after about <laughs> a week, I thought that's why, because I'm not staging less great moving big parts, production yeah. numbers. Right on. 
you've got an impressive resume as as a composer and adapter. Um, it, even composing the adaptation along with Peter Sham of Lend Me a Tenor in the uh -huh. West End in London that opened in, was it 2011? Yeah. Cool. Uh, what, where do you come at this as a composer? How do you... There's got to be a kind of an an itch for you that that isn't getting scratched <laughs> by directing a, a Shakespeare play. Right? Yeah, a little bit. Um, fortunately, uh, the 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 composer and sound designer that they brought in, um, uh -huh. Paul James Prendergast, is f f he's uh, he's a witch. I mean, you say two things <laughs> to him, and he brings back results. Cool. You know, when we sat down uh, several weeks ago and he said, well, I've got like five different thoughts of where this could go musically. And he played like five different versions yeah. of Western music. I mean, what yeah. we think of as Western music. And after listening to all of them, I said, I think the first instinct is uh -huh. the one that makes most sense to me. So the whole thing is scored with saloon hall piano. Very cool. That sets the tone in a way that I hadn't even imagined that it could. And just little little uh, transitional things between uh -huh. scenes sort of knit the whole play together. Because I was feeling odd about some of the transitions. I feel like, yeah. oh, what's missing here? Well, what was missing was the music. Music, And okay. it really is the string that ties the whole thing together. And so it's funny and it's, and it's familiar. Yeah, yeah. You've you got know? a motive like you do in yeah, a song, right? absolutely. So yeah, that makes sense. It, it's been great working with him because he's he's really collaborative and really easygoing about it all and then shows up with stuff that fits times out so we didn't have to spend a lot of time haggling about it worrying about those transitions because yeah. the music actually carries it through it really does and it, cool. it just sort of keeps that flavor that old out of tune saloon hall piano is is perfect rather than some big epic like magnificent seven sounding score. Yeah, yeah. It was just too big for the space. Grandiose. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. You you've worked all over. Uh, yeah. I mentioned London earlier, uh Japan for uh Disney International. Mm -hmm. You've been back here a lot of times even before you got the resident artist position with the university. Mm -hmm. What's kept you coming back here with your with your resume it seems like you could I mean go almost anywhere you wanted to. I love this festival. You know, I, I'll never forget. And yeah, it's that simple. In 2002 was my first season. I yeah. got the offer the summer of 2001 and I was in Japan doing, putting up this Disney show. Uh -huh. And I was so shocked because it just never occurred to me that a guy who did mute, I had never even considered a Shakespeare festival. Yeah. Because I, I do musicals. What, yeah. what are they going to need me for? <laughs> you know, and Scott and Fred uh, used to come over to PCPA every yeah. summer and see the work. And so they had seen stuff that I had done there. Mm -hmm. um, so this offer came out of the blue. I had never submitted a resume. Oh, wow. Or anything. So it was really kind of shocking. And I had sort of been, you know, not pigeonholed, but known for doing... Com musical comedies, mm -hmm. you know, funny thing happened on the way to the forum, guys and dolls and stuff like that. Yeah. And the first offer I got here was Man of La Mancha, one of my favorite shows. But oh, wow. Different. Not funny. Yeah. I mean, not, you know, not one of those kind of musical comedies. And yeah. I thought, wow, I can't believe I've been offered this. Yes, I'll do it, you know, and came in and had a great time. And then the offers, you know, knock wood, have just kept coming. Kept so, coming. Yeah, I love coming here every summer. I just love the work I get to do. I love the people that they bring in the, you know, the actors and the designers. And yeah. it's, it's a great sort of summer haven. You've come at theater from almost every conceivable 
a direction as a composer, uh, as a, as a music director, as a director, as a performer. What, when did you catch the bug? Your life is centered around this in such a way as I rarely see a lot, a lot of people I talk to, it's kind of like they, you know, they, they're here during the academic year and then, you know, they're here uh -huh. during the summer and they've sort of picked two places and they go back and forth. But over the years, you've, like I said, kind of danced all over the place. Yeah. When, when did you know you, this was it, this is what you had to do? Well, it, for me, it all started with music. Music. And, you know, not, I was nine years old. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they said, well, if you want to learn to play an instrument, come to the cafeteria tonight and bring your parents. And I pointed to an alto sax and said, that's what I want to play. Don't know why. <laughs> so they bought me one. And so m music was really what I thought I was going to go into. Yeah. And then my senior year in high school, I took a drama class to satisfy an English credit. Oh, wow. And then sort of caught the bug. And then once I got into college, I really started splitting my time between the two. Yeah. And uh, I had a, a couple of mentors, you know, show up just when you needed them and said, well, you know, you could combine the two. Bridge them. Do both. Yeah. And, and then, but really, at the risk of sounding coy here, everything, everything I've been handed came out of the blue. I didn't seek a job as a musical director. Somebody yeah. tapped me on the shoulder and said, I understand you play the piano. We could use a musical director in our theater. <laughs> you know, directing was the same thing. I was the resident music director at PCPA, and the artistic director stopped me in the hallway one day and said, I think you need to direct. Oh, wow. And I said, okay, well, what do you mean by that? And so they handed me the Christmas musical, which was the big cash cow of the season. Yeah. You know, it was Cinderella. Um, oh, wow. Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella, and Jeremy Mann played the prince. And Kathy Brady, who's here playing the abbess in Comedy of Errors, played the stepmother. So oh, wow. Kathy was in the first musical I ever directed. That's incredible. And we haven't seen each other in over 25 years. But here you are. And here we are together back again. together. And it's just fantastic. So every, and every time I would decide I'm going to do this now, the phone would ring. Yeah. I had decided I was going to be an opera director because uh -huh. some of that started opening up for me. And then Disney called. Wow. So I'm going, well, that seems like a door I should go through mm -hmm. and pursue. So, and I mean, I think the, the root of it all is I never decided what I wanted to be when I grew up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I do love the variety. I don't know that I could do one of those things full time. I'm just the way I'm wired. Yeah, yeah. I like that it's a little bit of everything and mm -hmm. it, it changes up every year. It's, yeah. it's, it's not the same. And that's what keeps me fueled, I think. That's incredible. So you've, I don't want to say lucky, but you've got to feel a little bit kissed by fate, right? The Absolutely. Doors I tell opening. students all the time, I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones. Because people know, try to make I've it and made my living doing yeah. this since I was 20 years old. Very cool. I could sit here, Brad, and, and talk to you all day, <laughs> but we, we need to let you go. Okay. I know you're a busy man, but thank you so much. Oh, this has been great. Thank you're you so much. Really an, an inspiring person, I think, for students and for all the people just wandering the halls of the Shakespeare Festival to see plays. So thank you again for, for taking the time out to chat well, with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Cool. Appreciate it. Thank you. Next week, tune in to hear our conversation with Josh Stavros and festival founder Fred C. Adams, who are directing The Green Show this season. If you found this podcast through iTunes, you can find more information on the Utah Shakespeare Festival website, www.bard.org, under the News Media tab. <laughs>